you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. If you are on the email prayer chain, you already know this, but for those of you who may not uh, be on it or didn't look, uh, Kendra Brower uh, did pass away yesterday. Um, Kendra was 38 years old and his husband and two children. And so just be praying for Graham and Morgan and Burke as they absorb this and go forward together. I know many of you are very involved and will have a new chance to stay involved uh, in their situation and the challenges that lay ahead. But uh, we'll be um, with more information coming about services and so forth uh, um, in the future. Mark 3, verses 22 through 27. In just a moment, we'll stand and read that together. I want you to link together the song that we just finished singing with verse 27. The song we just finished singing is an expression of the confidence and the hope that Jesus is getting at in what Mark describes as his second little parable. So there's this outlandish accusation made against Jesus, and he answers it in our text with two little parables. The second of those two is verse 27, And where our singing ended, uh, at least the pre-sermon singing, where that ended, that's where uh, the sermon ends, that's where the text ends as, as well. So just have that song in the back of your mind that we just sang, especially when we get to verse 27. Let's stand together. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He's possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out the demons. And he called to them and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man 
then indeed he may plunder his house. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we give you thanks that you are good and that your steadfast love endures forever. Lord, we are reminded, as we so often are, by the events of a single week, of how varied our experience is. As on the one hand, we rejoice with the Isaac family on the birth of a son. What a gift. What a blessing. What a cause for celebration such an event is. And in the same week, uh, we mourn the death of a wife and mother. What a tragedy. What a sense of loss. What a heartbreaking event that is. In you, not without hope, but still heartbreaking and devastating. Lord, may we, as your redeemed people, think of ourselves in that way, even as we have already been singing this morning, thinking about ourselves as your people who redeemed us right out of the hand of trouble, out of the hand of the world and the flesh and the devil, redeemed us from, as the psalmist says, lands that are near, redeemed us from the east and from the west and from the north and from the farthest seas, Lord, we found ourselves wandering in the spiritual wasteland of the way of this world, finding no living hope here, no lasting hope here, but rather finding a hope in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, as we come to this particular Sunday, hungering for this and that, thirsting for this and that. We pray, Father, that as we find ourselves fainting in the midst of such things, that we would be among those, as the psalmist says, who cry out unto you in our trouble and who meet you in all of our straits and our distress and find you able to rescue us. 
For you meet us in all of our troubled ways and walk with us and keep us by yourself. Through your Son. So, Lord, in this mixture of joy and sorrow, we give you thanks for your steadfast love does indeed endure forever. And among your wonders are the wonders of birth and the wonders of new birth that bring about the wonder of hope even in the face of death. To be able to think of Kendra as absent from the body and at home with the Lord, for that is your promise. What a wonder it is to have that sort of hope as our hope. As we sang it just a few moments ago, as our hope that springs from you in the person of your Son, as our living hope. And so we live in the hope of the living hope of Jesus. May you strengthen us in that hope and remind us of how we got it, even in our text for this morning and through that text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You be seated. One of the most prominent Anglican pastors of the 20th century was no doubt a preacher by the name of John Stott, who exactly 40 years ago, so a generation ago, 40 years ago, he published a book on preaching, which he titled this way, The Art of Preaching in the 20th Century, colon, and then Between Two Worlds. Now, it's the last part of that title that we're interested in. Between Two Worlds. Because what he was talking about there is the challenge of any preacher... Any Sunday school teacher, any Bible study leader, and most broadly, any reader of the Bible. So if you're going to start at the the broadest, if you're going to read the Bible profitably, Stott was saying, what you're going to have to figure out how to do is to read about what discipleship looked like in the first century when Jesus was on the earth. And you're going to have to take the lessons from there, lived out in Palestine in the Roman Empire, and transfer so as to accurately and helpfully apply them to your life 
here in 21st century Sioux Falls. The Bible speaks to us between these two worlds, and it calls upon us to make this jump, to be able to learn from the first century world and be transformed by what we learn so as to live it out now in the 21st century world. That's the task, that's the challenge, and that's what's, that's what's going on here in our study of Mark. That's what we're trying to do week by week, is take discipleship as Mark records it in the first century and figure out what it means there and what it means here and how to apply it to where we live now in sort of the twilight hours of Western civilization as major sweeping things take place all around us. Uh, how do you live for Christ in, in times like these? We used John 15 as a thematic parallel last week and we're going to do the same uh, again this morning. This time over in John 15 verse 20, Jesus said this, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. Jesus was saying to his disciples, broadly speaking, don't expect to be treated here in the Roman Empire and here in first century Judea, men, any better than you see me being treated. Expect roughly the same dual reaction. The vast majority reaction will be rejection. They persecuted me. They opposed me. They find me distasteful. They will find you roughly the same. On the other hand, on the bright side, you'll also notice that there have always been people who listened to me, who embraced my word, and whose lives turned and were changed by that word. And you'll find the same thing happen through your words as you repeat my words after you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours as well. And it's true. And it's true. And most of you, you're an example of that. You heard this word You embraced this word, and you became part of this minority group who follows Jesus Christ among the seven billion people, seven plus billion people on planet Earth. That's your your story. And that's how Jesus described how it'll keep being. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours. And a generation after that, and a generation after that, and a generation after that, 
and on it will go. But this text begins and focuses on the majority response, the opposition. I've stated our thesis this way. The forces of Antichrist often stoop to the use of pathetic propaganda. The forces of Antichrist often stoop to the use of pathetic propaganda. And that's what we meet with here in Mark 3.22. I've put this heading over it. Pathetic propaganda, the accusation. The accusation. Verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying... He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. So, Jesus has performed some miracles, and they, let me explain those miracles to you. Here's the explanation. Number one, he's possessed by the devil, Beelzebub, just a, a word for the devil, name for the devil. And secondly, it is by means of the power of the devil that exorcisms and healings have been taking place. So there is our explanation of Jesus. And notice whose explanation it is. This isn't some, you know, secular group out of Rome. This isn't pagan philosophers of some kind. No, these are the scribes coming down from Jerusalem. This is Judaism. This is the the people that Jesus understands himself to have come to save, to be a part of. He is their Messiah. They are the ones who come up with this slogan and this propaganda that Jesus is possessed by the devil and that all that he accomplishes, he accomplishes by means of the power of the devil. Now that's a bold statement. That's that's bold to the point of being bombastic, right? That's a placarded thing. He is possessed of the devil, works by the power of the devil. There you have it. There you have it. Now, what we often miss out on is that the majority of people in that generation went with roughly something like that. That worked for most people. That worked. That was effective. The majority who heard that said something like, Oh, well, that explains a lot. I wondered. I wondered. Um, the majority. Not everybody, but the majority. Now, one of the reasons, of course, that they may have come up with that 
as we saw just earlier in the chapter, right? Back in verse 11, Mark 3:11, Whenever unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. See? That, that's who endorses him. Demon-possessed people. Well, that's because he's demon-possessed. That's who endorses him. Because he works by the same power that, that they work by. Well, you've got to admit, on the surface, that's, there's some plausibility to that. Yeah, why would they be saying that? I can tell you no, none of the commentators have a great explanation for what's really going on there as the demons announce that Jesus is uh, the Son of God. Uh, they go back and forth. They're not on the same page. Well, if, if, if scholars, after uh, you know, uh, 20 centuries of uh, interpretive tradition, still can't get on the same page, you can't really blame people who are in the moment, not all being on the same page. They come along and say, well, I'll explain why demons talk that way. Uh, it's because he's possessed by the devil and... By the power of the devil, he casts out the demons. And it works. It works. And we have very similar sorts of things take place in our own time by our own version of scribes from Jerusalem. There's people with very, very uh, well-founded traditions, theological traditions, theological, biblical, ecclesiastical Platforms. I don't know if you've noticed this when you've been walking. I, I, I walk a fair bit. So all, all over town, certainly in our neighborhoods, probably um, I didn't look up to see where, where the church is actually located, but there's a, uh, uh, there, there's a church in town that has these signs out all over the place. And it just all it says on the sign in large print is love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. Well, it's just pretty much impossible to disagree with that. Love your neighbor. And then such and such uh, a church along the bottom of it. Love your neighbor. Now, in some of the signs up on the top, there's also a political endorsement of uh, certain candidates. Um, and and, and, and that, that's, what, that's what tips you off to, well, how is that... How is love your neighbor, uh, both a theological and uh, a political candidate's message at the same time? Well, once you, once you see who the political candidate is, then, then you, you don't have to have any doubt about it. You just look off the broader culture. So what does, what does the love your neighbor sign mean? in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Well, it, uh, it, it means something like this. If you love your neighbor, you will affirm your neighbor in whatever they've decided is best for themselves, especially in the sexual realm. So to love your neighbor turns out to be you love your neighbor by affirming the choices of your LGBTQ plus neighbor. And that's how you love them. Okay. 
But what if you don't affirm that? Well, then you don't love them. It's not quite as innocuous a sign as it may first appear. Just love your neighbor. It makes quite a statement. Is that true? Is that true? That to love your neighbor is to affirm whatever your neighbor has chosen for themselves, especially along the LBGTQ plus spectrum. Most people believe that it certainly is. And the denomination that this church is a part of, which is a large one, one of the largest in the United States, that is their official position. It's a scribal position. It is held in the name of Christianity. Just as much as Jesus being Beelzebub was held in the name of official Judaism in the first century. It's a piece of propaganda and an effective one. A very effective one. Secondly, Pathetic propaganda, Jesus' answer, phase one. Jesus' answer, phase one. And he called to them and said, in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Um, now, they've made a serious accusation against Jesus. That, that is, it's certainly serious in intent. It means for you to oppose Jesus, to leave any thought of him, of following him behind you, and to understand that he represents the forces of evil. But Jesus is not at all convinced that it is a serious accusation as to substance. Uh, that is, he's, he's not impressed with what will happen if you give the accusation just a modicum of examination. In fact, he's fairly persuaded that the accusation will quickly fall apart. And so here's his effort in a little parable to do that. So here's his parable, verse 24. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not stand. And so Jesus just says, well, so here's my question to you. If, if, if these scribes are right, and it, and it is, it is actually the strategy of Beelzebub to, to undo his own work. So he possesses people, and then he 
exercises the, himself out of them. He afflicts people and then he unafflicts them. So if he has been fighting himself like that, and by the way, he's been at this for a long time. He's been at, remember, these are, this is Jewish background. We've been at this since the Garden of Eden, so he's been a long time in his efforts. Jesus said, I'll have to tell you, if this was his strategy, I'm pretty sure his kingdom would have disappeared a long time ago. Because a house divided against itself can't stand. But in fact, his house is not only standing, but it's doing really well. Fabulously well. Impressively well. As we'll see in a little bit, he runs the world. I'm going to get a picture of how Jesus' disciples thought about how Satan was doing in the world. Just a little homework assignment this afternoon. Just reread Revelation chapter 12 about the great dragon and the beast and the picture of the world that that paints of the Roman Empire in the first century about how massively powerful it was. Presently seeking to destroy all those who pay any attention to Jesus. That's Jesus' argument. If, if, if Satan was really divided against himself, his kingdom would have died out long ago. But it hasn't. It hasn't. It's doing really well. It's vastly powerful. It's really not a very persuasive argument that I am casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. Not a very impressive argument at all. Now, how about the argument in our day? How impressive is that? If you really love people, you'll affirm them in whatever they're really devoted to. That's how love Love works. Is it plausible to understand Jesus in that way? In other words, somebody just likes sleeping around a lot. The Bible labels that fornication. So there's lots of fornications. Then, then that word, Jesus is all for that. Loves that fornication. Go ahead. Be a Christian fornicator. You like other people's wives. Oh, well, that's labeled adultery. Bless adultery. Go ahead. Be a Christian adulterer. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's really quite a wonderful uh, thing to be and to do. And as we'll see in a moment, you can go quite far on down lists of such things that somebody like the Apostle Paul puts together for us. And, and Paul, don't forget, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ. In, in, in the denomination just mentioned is very 
popular to sort of turn Paul against Jesus. So you got Paul over here and Jesus over here, and Jesus is the good guy and Paul is the bad guy. The New Testament it doesn't really lend itself to that much, right? So listen to how, how Paul introduces himself as he introduces himself by letter to the Corinthians. Paul, by the will of God, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, a sent one of Christ Jesus. And our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. In other words, I'm about to write to you for the sake of those who are devoted to following Jesus. They're called saints, that is, they're called set-apart ones, set-apart to Jesus, together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Jesus people, I'm writing to the Jesus people in behalf of Jesus. He's our Lord. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen to the kind of thing that Paul says to these people about what our, our sign implies here in Sioux Falls. Or, you do not, do you, do you, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived by the propaganda. Don't be deceived by the scribes in the first century, by the scribes in the 21st century, by the propaganda in the first century, by the propaganda in the 21st century. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, that's fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the signs in our neighborhood, just interpreted straightforwardly as they are meant to be interpreted, imply this. The only way to love your fornicating neighbor is to affirm the righteousness and harmlessness of fornication. The only way to love your adulterous neighbor is to affirm the righteousness and harmlessness of their adultery. The only way to love your homosexual neighbor is to affirm the righteousness and harmlessness of homosexuality. The only way to love your thieving neighbor is to affirm the righteousness and harmlessness of theft. The only way to love your greedy neighbor is to affirm the righteousness and harmlessness of their greed. And the only way to love your drunken neighbor is to affirm the righteousness and harmlessness of drunkenness. That's the argument. Love your neighbor. Love your neighbor. And that's how you do it. Paul says, no, 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 no. That's not true. That's not true. 
You are, if you love such people, if you love, if you love fornicators, adulterers, homosexual people, thieves, greedy people, and drunks, what you do is warn them that such people will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's what you do. Yes, you love them, but you love them in calling them to repentance away from the disastrous direction that they are presently tending. That's what you do. He says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived by the voices at Corinth in the first century that said the opposite. Don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that that's the idea is made plain as you just move forward a little bit with Paul. Uh, And he goes on to say this in verse 10. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of God of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus loves people away from such things, not into them, not affirming them. That's the picture. Now, the key to the effectiveness of this campaign, don't miss this, because this is really key. The key to the effect of of this campaign is the vast ignorance of the Bible possessed by the average professing believer. If you don't actually know what's in the Bible, then you are a sitting duck for such clever little pieces of propaganda. And they are clever. Make no mistake about it. That argument works. I know people in that tradition who have gone to church all their lives, who have sung in the choir for years, and it just trips off their tongue now to say, you know what, I think people should be able to love whoever they want. Where did they learn that? Not in the Gospel of John. Not in Romans. Not in Exodus. They learned that by the cultural propaganda of the late 20th and 21st century, and they, and they repeat it like it's gospel truth with all their heart. And what enables them to do that is the almost complete ignorance of the word of God that characterizes their lives. So you and I had better be Bible people. We had better know what the Word of God teaches and how to think about it and how to reason about it. Tonight, the evening service in the in the Ten Commandments. All kinds of surveys down to so people. The, the, the average church person cannot name the Ten Commandments anymore. They don't know. They, they don't know. Oh, well. It's a disaster. 
The Psalms open with this admonition to us along these lines. Blessed is the man who who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in that law he meditates day and night. He's the one who will be like a tree planted in streams of living water. The wicked, not so. Like chaff, they get blown away. Any cultural propaganda blows them away. Jesus cast out the demons by Beelzebub. Well, that's what I thought, had my suspicions. Yep, that makes sense. Love your neighbor? Oh, yes. Yep, that's, that's the really loving people. That's the really loving people. Thirdly, pathetic propaganda, Jesus' answer, phase two. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then indeed he may plunder his house. Go back to our little illustration from Billy Joel last week. Be lost on you if you weren't here, because I'm not going to take the time to give it its context. But the end of the final verse in his song, Piano Man, he little question, Man, what are you doing here? Man, what are you doing here? And last week we posed it, and this week the same thing. That's the question to ask yourself when you, if you belong to a Christian community. In a world of 7 billion people where the vast majority of people don't, and they don't think about it, and they're not worried about it, what are you doing here? Man, what are you doing here? How did you get here? How is it that people end up following Jesus in a world where most people don't give him the time of day? And the answer isn't that, well, that's because he just... Look around, we're a bunch of pretty smart people here at First Free Church. That's, that's the explanation. No, that's not it. That's not it. Um, Jesus is giving us the answer. Here, at the end of this text, our second little parable, no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Also earlier in this chapter, remember Jesus, he chooses whom he desires. And there he has disciples who make disciples. And there's this group of people of God. Where did they come from? Well, he plundered the strong man's house. He plundered the strong man's house and he seized people back. Well, they're a minority. In fact, I mean, the the, the way the New Testament speaks... Christians are, are, are described as a, as a tiny minority, right? And they especially were in the first century. I mean, whoa. First uh, John 5.19 is just such of a powerful text to think about. We know that we are from God. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We know that we are from God. We know that 
The Lord Jesus Christ plundered the strong man's house and took hold of us. We know that. That's how it happened. That's the explanation for who we are. We know that. We are from God. So we sing. Christ is our living hope, the resurrected hope. The explanation for who we are. In the margin, Greek New Testament across from Mark 3.27 is a reference to the text that Nate read from Isaiah. Um, see, there's, there's a reason we choose these texts. They're not random. You know, this, uh, you know so when, you, when he's reading that text, you can think, this might fit in later. It will. It always will, whether it's referenced or not. And, and today, I'm going to reference it. So let me reread what Nate wrote. And you think about verse 27. Plundering the strong man's house. Here's what it says. Context of Isaiah 49. Isaiah speaking of God's message to the people that are going to be in exile. Babylonian exile. And it's going to look absolutely hopeless. Like Israel is gone. The promises are gone. Hope is gone. Everything's gone. And he said, not going to be so. Not going to be so. And here's how he says it. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Can God take his people out of the Babylonian empire if he wants? That's what he's saying. Can the prey be taken from the mighty? Or the captives of a tyrant like Nebuchadnezzar? Can they be rescued? At the time, doesn't look possible. No. Don't see how they could. For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children, and I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh, and they shall be drunk with their own blood, as with wine. Then all flesh will know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. What a great little phrase at the end there in the context of the Gospel of Mark, right? The Mighty One of Jacob. For in Jesus, you have this twofold relationship to Jacob, right? Jesus is both the God of Jacob, and the offspring of Jacob. The God of Jacob and the seed of Abraham through Jacob. He's the God-man. And he's the one who tells us here that he came into this world to plunder the strong man's house and to lead out a people for himself. No one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he can plunder the house. That's what you're doing here. That's the explanation for any Christian. Is that my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, has plundered the strong man's house 
shown me my need for a Savior, helped me experience my own sin, let me see that justice would demand that I am lost and damned and hopeless, while simultaneously showing me that Christ has died in my place, offered me the forgiveness of all my sins based on his shed blood, and promised me everlasting life if I merely rest in him. And you did that. And as you did that, Jesus was plundering the strong man's house. We are from God. But the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Not plausible. Was not plausible propaganda. Jesus is an evil spirit. Not plausible propaganda. That Christian love affirms everything that the New Testament warns you not to affirm. Popular propaganda. Culturally plausible propaganda. But not biblically so. Don't be deceived. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would enable us to be the people of your word, the people of your wisdom, the people of your worship. Lord, may we genuinely embody your word in worship and wisdom and witness. For the sake of the broader world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.